Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you are watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about generative fill in Photoshop specifically, but just basically show a couple examples of it, talk about uh, what it can actually do and how we're using it in uh, in some of our productions. And so a couple of us, I think, have some things to show and we'll show you those in the second hour. So if you've got uh, questions about that, go ahead and throw those in. And if you've got general questions, of course, you can throw them in for the first hour. Uh, we have our our CG expert, Alan Hawks, here. So if you've got questions about uh, computer graphics, uh, go ahead and throw those in. Today, of course, is the graphics day. Um, and a couple of us do a, a little bit of graphics there. So good, good day to ask graphics questions uh, for the first hour. And we'll go ahead and jump into those questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thanks, Alex. First in is Bo Cordell from Charleston, South Carolina. Bo asks... I'm in a market for a new MacBook for basic coffee shop, airplane-type personal use. VS Code, Photos, Very Light Photoshop, AE, FCP, Work. The 16-inch feels a bit big for my needs. Would I regret the 14-inch Pro? Good, Bill. I don't think so. They're incredibly fast. They're incredibly lightweight. Um, the pros are a little heavier than the airs. And my question is, if you're saying it's for personal use, not for business use, and whether uh, depending on whether or not you need the extra ports for I.O., um, I've been really happy with my MacBook Air 14-inch. I have it in the voice booth, but when I take it out on the road, that's the the computer I take with me most of the time. And these new M-series processors, particularly, I've got an M2 in both of these, are just so fast that I've gotten to the point where the machine's power is just not an issue anymore. They cut through even complicated work so fast these days that I would think that, for me, the the question comes down to how much I.O. port connection do you need? If you're going to use it as your desk, as a regular computer, more ports is definitely more better. Uh, if you're going to use it just on the road for lightweight work and you only need a hard drive or maybe th uh, a little dock and a couple of peripherals, you'll be fine with the Air series and you'd be easier to travel with. So that's my two cents. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I agree with the Air idea, but you might wait because there's been some rumblings that they may be releasing a new MacBook Pro um this september so uh that's been with the m3 next generation of uh silicon coming out so look at the rumor mill and see if you want to wait uh until then because you might want to kick yourself if you buy it right before they announce a brand new line of exactly what you were looking for go ahead alan Yeah, I might be able to give you a bit of practical advice on this because I use a 16-inch uh, MacBook Pro as my main workstation, even as for high-end CG work. And to Bill's point, I mean, these things cut through most anything. Uh, I had a unique experience where I was I was borderline regretting a 16 because it is, it is, it is a little bit cumbersome, right, when I try to carry it on the road with me. Um, and I had to get my 16-inch serviced and I ended up replacing it with a 14 inch of the same specs and it was too small for me. So um, I liked the portability, but it wasn't good for a main workstation really. Um, so it really kind of depends, but based on the what I'm seeing about your particular usage, I think a 14 would be fine. If you need the desktop usage, you can plug in as many monitors as you want. In terms of power, you're not gonna have any problem at all, any problem at all. But if uh, if portability is your desire, you know, if it's your goal, 
Um, the 16 is a little bit cumbersome, but if you plan on using it mostly at a main workstation, um, then I would go for the 16. But in your case, I would probably recommend 14. Good, Mitchell. I would be concerned because you're going to be crunching numbers with uh, After Effects and Final Cut, uh, whether the errors would be too hot. Um, the pros, even though they're more powerful, have fans in them. There's some kind of error handling going on there. So I just think that should be consideration. Honestly, I haven't had one of the newer uh, Mac uh, MacBooks, so I don't know from practical experience, but it used to be an issue. Go ahead, Chris. I'm concerned about the state of our society when we listen to Alan talking about a half-inch thick supercomputer being cumbersome. I'm worried, Alan. That's, that's, that's a pretty powerful <laughs> computer to claim that it's cumbersome. And also, I love the fact that Courtney is talking about Mac rumors. Just being that great, Courtney. <laughs> you know, I, I, I will say I, I, I have a 14-inch, uh, the 2019. I don't have the M series, but I have the 14-inch, uh, and uh, I hate it. I hate it. Um, I haven't, I haven't, I don't travel enough to make it worth uh, buying another laptop, but I, I think it's persuaded me that I don't like using laptops anymore. So that's how I feel about it. I, I do use it on the road. It is, I can, the, the one thing that I like about the 14 inch uh, laptop is that in my Rush 24 backpack, it will fit in that little slot in right against my back with an iPad. Those two will fit in there. I don't think a 16 inch would fit in there. <clears throat> so I have to put it in the main, um, the main part of the bag. So that's the one, the one thing that I like about it, but that's the only thing I like about that laptop. Um, and so, so the, um, you know, so I think that it's, it is, again, I, I just, I, I keep on buying Mac minis because I need them here. I don't travel enough to make it worth it. But every time I, every time I try to do anything on a 14 inch, I'm just like, I can't believe I ever thought this was going to work. Um, and, and admittedly, what happened was I had a 14 and a 16. The 14 was kind of like the little shuttle and the 16 was there. And then we, we started using my 16 in the office. <laughs> so it was still there. It's running Softron now, I think. Um, and uh, and I just didn't, I didn't think it was worth buying another laptop because I don't travel enough. But wow, I do not like the 14 inch. Um, next question. Next one in from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Mike asked, morning, everyone. Adding copyrighted music to content in TikTok doesn't allow you to manage the volume of the music. Music's lower than speaker. If I break it, bake it in, uh, it's muted and flagged. How would the panel approach solving this? 30-second rule? Thanks. I'll go according. I would not depend on uh, using uh, the 30-second rule because you might get flagged by uh, the bots anyway. Uh, you, there's a number of websites out there that offer uh, clear it, cleared music, uh, Here's well, but I think he wants to, I mean, what's happening in TikTok a lot of times is, is that they're using, I mean, there's music that you can use that's in TikTok. So these are, mu these are music tracks, um, oftentimes that are copywritten, but people, I mean, culturally people want to use them, um, you know, use their song songs. They don't want to use, you know, they don't want to, they're not, he's not trying to use general music. He's trying to use a specific song. I think that's the, oh, I, I didn't that's say how, that. I'm sorry. He just said music. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is just the, I mean, in TikTok. You see and it says it's flagged and, and muted. So I assume. Uh, it was well, it does. So what happens is, is that if you use the song, when TikTok lets you add the song, there's songs that you can get in TikTok. And if you grab those songs in TikTok, you can make it another track and you can talk over it if you want. Um, but 
it and it knows inside of its system that that's one of the ones that it provided for you. If you take that track and bake it into yours, it doesn't have it doesn't have the metadata anymore to know that it's a TikTok delivered song. It just says you're you embedded it in, um, and the, and they do that for because they're paying. They're basically they can't manage the residuals and the payments based on that if you bake it into your video, and so they immediately flag it and turn it off. So that's the that's the I think that's the challenge. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a. Thing. Oh, you're youngsters with this TikTok. I'm gonna yeah, have to yeah, look exactly. at that one. Steve. I just had a conversation. We're gonna do. We're gonna have somebody come on and talk about Snapchat, and uh, that was kind of eye opening for me. Like just the because uh, my, my kids. That's that you know, <laughs> my kids are my kids. They don't use any social media right now. But but my my uh, but their friends have Snapchat, and they that's like all they use. Like they 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 like you know they. They tell their, I think they tell their parents, you know, go ahead and try to contact us on Facebook because we don't know anybody there. <laughs> like, like it's, you know, the, the whole, the whole new Snapchat is the thing, which is amazing because it just, you just thought that Facebook was going to roll over them and uh, they've somehow owned it. Now go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, all true. Um, everything you just heard. Um, interesting thing about copyright rule is that so many people think that if it, uh, if, if it suits their situation, then it must be legal. And that comes down to fair play. Uh, using just 30 seconds of a song. None of those things are, are truly uh, copyright uh, protected. So um, be careful. Make sure you get the right uh, uh, the right clearances to do it. And as has been said here, if you pick the music that they provide, you're not going to have an issue with that. Well, the, and the challenge really is, is that um, it's not about copyright law. So people think that the, the, this has to do with copyright law. It is understanding the algorithm because all of these companies have to figure out some kind of algorithm to protect copyright um, infringement. And they build an algorithm that looks for a certain thing and has a certain set of rules. They're not looking for what the law is. They're looking for what can they um, manage. And so what what YouTube or TikTok or others will flag has to do with their system, not the, the absolute law. So you can, even if it's you're using fair use or a shorter piece, it doesn't really matter because if the algorithm identifies it, it's going to identify it. Um, and, you know, they can't they can't work at that level of precision. Um, yeah, even question. even 10 seconds is going to be a problem or five yeah. seconds. Yeah. It's yeah. how quick the algorithm catches it. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Do you think that it would be feasible to create a three-camera road kit for small panel discussion live streaming with Obsbot Tail 2 PTZ cameras? Good, Bill. The word you used was feasible. Sure, it, it's going to be feasible. Now, here's what I discovered. I once did a tour where I have it travel around to a bunch of cities and do presentations. And within the first week, I could tell which parts of my system were going to fail over the course of the next four meetings because some of the little fiddly connections in terms of roadworthiness just weren't making it. So it will be feasible. It will probably work. Obspots are, are very small kind of uh, robotic cameras. And I would be concerned, unless you treat them with kid gloves, the longevity in them, I would suspect, would be tough on the road. Now, if you're just doing a few dates not maybe a problem and it probably worked just fine if you're going to be doing this consistently uh, I think you'd very quickly move up to more robust hardware and networking stuff because you just need it to plug in and work and road is hard on gear that's my two cents good Courtney it looks like a competent camera it's uh, got a Sony CMOS sensor and uh, 12 megapixels and all that good stuff it's main uh, 
claim to fame apparently uh, is going to be its AI, the ability to uh, automatically track things, uh, do gesture-based moves for uh, individual video bloggers, vloggers. Uh, it, it should be great. But using three of them, I guess it's USB only. I'm not sure or or how to do a live show with it, you would probably have to use OBS or something that takes multiple USB cameras in and uh, switch. And I'd be worried about uh, if it's if it has this AI tracking that, you know, suddenly two cameras would start tracking the same person instead of staying on the person that they're supposed to track, and you might run into problems with it. The AI getting confused about what its duties are. You can lock lock it onto one person, I suppose, but then you lose the ability to track their head movement, things like that. So I don't know. It remains to be seen on, I, I didn't see what the interface is on it. doesn't seem to say so. I'll have to look under the tech specs. Yeah. I think the software is going to be the thing, the, the thing I, I, you could absolutely do it. I mean, I think that we've built ones. I'm actually building one with the link three sixties. Uh, so a, a three camera um, system that would, that would do that. I also just got this. I haven't been able to test it yet. And this arrived. This was something that someone had asked about earlier, which is the Zato from Atomos. Um, and so what this does um, I'm about to test is it, it should be able to have the webcam. So the link 360 go into this monitor and then I can either send it out HDMI back into the switcher or I can stream it from actually from this. It's funny, the, this came with an Ethernet adapter. I was like, what am I going to do with the Ethernet adapter? And then I realized, oh, it's because I can like, I can actually, uh, with the Ethernet adapter, um, stream, you know, RTMP from this little monitor. So anyway, so I'm testing that right now. Now I'm about to test it. The um, uh, I think that the you could probably put it together. Uh, as Bill said, I mean, I would probably build some custom stuff to hold hold the cameras, but they should be fine. Uh, I, you know, I think that the thing that one challenge that you may have with those is just USB length. So remember that you may have to use fiber uh, USB connections um, to to get that and whether they can, you know, carry power. I don't quite understand what that, how that looks, but that'd be the only thing I'd be really concerned about. Um, but for simple interviews, I bet you this would work great. Um, I'd probably turn off all the AI. It looks like it does have presets. I was looking at the website, so you could probably set a couple presets for each camera. What I don't really understand is for multiple cameras, can, how does the interface open? Do you have to have open three instances of the controller? Do you have to, like, how do you set that up? And that's something that both, I think, um, you know, and what we're hoping for is to see more remote control. I know that other OBSBOTs can handle OSC, so combined with OSC, you could end up with something really interesting where you can start tying things back together so you can have OSC commands of where those cameras go and what they do based on what you're hitting on a piece of software. So I, I think it could work really well. Uh, the chip is a little small. I'd love to see them build a, a camera like this with a you know, with a four thirds inch chip or a super 35 chip or even a, you know, a one inch chip. Uh, Sony makes in a one inch chip that would be really amazing inside of this. So um, I'd, I'd love to see them take that one more step up. But uh, but I'd love if you use it, definitely let us know how it works. Uh, and if uh, I'm going to do some more research on it. it, looks it looks like a really interesting camera. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asks, an artificial intelligence firm in Spain has AI humans that allow people to real-time modify their voices. What other applications can you see for this? Go ahead, Courtney. Oh, you know, holding up banks, things like that, you know. If uh, <laughs> there's tons of uh, uh, voice modifiers out there, in fact, the mixer that I'm speaking to you now has them. I can talk like uh, a variety of different sounds and uh i can be a munchkin or a monster 
So uh, they are available. Well, uh, yeah, built into the Roadcaster Pro too. Just get you one of those, so you can think of a variety of things for recording voiceovers for uh, children's books, narrating your children's books when the monster comes in. You can do the monster voice very easily. Yes, it's interesting time <laughs> so but i think for a satire for comedy for um but you know obviously you can have nefarious things but you could do a lot of things also with it uh that are probably a little less uh, radio plays that that have the voices jumping around a lot those are all things that would be really interesting you could almost have something set up where you're you're hitting a different button while you're talking and it would be changing the different characters and so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it works out next question Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, asking, in the latest XR headsets, hand tracking and face tracking is possible. Could ASL be used as an input interface instead of a QWERTY keyboard? QWERTY is now obsolete. ASL as programming input method? Thoughts? Go ahead, Bill. Jack, this was an interesting thing. I hadn't thought about ASL as one of the uh, kind of offshoots of this 3D space tracking that we've been talking a lot about since Apple announced the Vision headset thing. Now, I do think the eye tracking sensors and the rest of that built-in Vision has brought this um, brought this idea of capturing space to kind of a different level. And I'm, I'm not sure that's going to come down to something simple enough that a person... Uh, doing ASL could wear it, but who knows? Obviously, the state of the art in tracking things in space is going to accelerate dramatically because of this. So there may be at some point something you can wear pretty simply and have ASL uh, tracked and auto-translated. That would be aw awfully cool, I think. I think the, the, the only issue I would say is that if you're typing, you can type a lot faster than you can do ASL. So I, you know, I don't know why you would do it. You know, like, I think that that's the, the only thing that I would say is that um, uh, potentially, I guess, ASL to voice or something like that would be something that you could that you could do. But, I, you know, it's not. So um, also from the angle of the cameras on the headset uh, with occlusion and everything else that's going on, you know, it's one thing for it for a headset to be able to see certain gestures that it's programmed for. It's another thing to be able to read the entire ASL alphabet, you know, and understand what it what those shapes look like. Um, I think the chances of it doing that anytime soon is very low. So I, I think that the QWERTY keyboard probably has a couple more years. Um, next question. Next question in from Rick Coombs in Columbia, Tennessee. What is the best or easiest way to get one to one and a half hours of video off of my iPhone 13, <clears throat> pardon me, that I have recorded for someone else to edit? Uh, yeah, what I would do is I would sync it so that it shows up in your in your photos library. So I'm assuming that if you're shooting with your iPhone 13, you have a photos library. Uh, it might take a while for that to sync properly. You can connect your iPhone to your computer. Uh, it'll show up as a device inside of photos, and then you can import directly. You may want to do that because that's going to be a really large file, and waiting for it to do it over Wi-Fi might take a while. Um, so you can pull it off directly from there. There's also, I, I think, image, is it image? Connect uh, is like a weird little app that is, has been hidden in. Uh, I, I don't. I haven't used it in a long time, but it's a weird little app that Apple has that that will pull stuff off of iPhones faster. Um, and so I, I'm not sure if it's in the latest uh, OS, but anyway, pull it over and then export it from from Photos. Um, I would I would do it that way rather than trying to do any other way of grabbing it or sending it. Um, and then you can upload it to you know the cloud storage of your choice, whether that's Frame.io or Dropbox or Google Drive. Um, if you are shooting in HDR, you have to be careful of the metadata. So um, that's a little bit more complicated. We'll answer that another time. Next question. 
Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. Why is development for the MetaQuest and Quest 2 in later models so difficult? And why have the hardware manufacturers made it easier to produce 3D content? I I would say why haven't the hardware manufacturers is, is, is my guess of what that was. Um, the real challenge with uh, MetaQuest and or the Quest 2 d- developing for Oculus in general, the real challenge has been is they didn't really build a development pipeline. They're expecting us to use Unity or Unreal or, or other things like that. They're not... Um, they're not building something that's custom for the system. That's the that's the big advantage that Apple has with what they're doing with Vision, is they really built an entire library that you can grab onto that's customized for what they're doing, um, and that's not what what Meta chose to do because they they don't do software development like that. Um, and so so I think that they they didn't really. Um, it's tough, you know, to to build stuff, and you don't have the same interface guidelines or the guardrails when it comes to interface to make it look good. So as a, you ha, you really have to be a, on, on the Apple platforms, you don't really have to be a designer if you just follow the instructions. On the other platforms, a programmer has to be a designer. And that's why so many of the interfaces look so bad. So, um, so the, uh, because the, you know, programmers and designers are usually not the same person. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, and so, but, you know, Apple kind of uh, spoon feeds you a lot more of the interface uh, than than the other uh, platforms, and so uh, so I think that that's the real you know one of the real challenges um, as far as three D content. Three D content is you know again all of those things are a little bit difficult. They're getting a lot easier to generate with photogrammetry and other things like that. It's make it's getting easier and easier to do that, but it's still um, still a little bit of a lift. Um, just a quick reminder that of course you can ask questions for both the second hour when it comes to generative AI or the first hour. We still have plenty of time to answer your questions. So if you've got questions uh, about digital media production, make sure to throw them in right now. Also, uh, you can vote on those questions so we know what order you'd like us to discuss them. All right, let's go and jump into the next question. Mitch. Michael Patera from Poland asks, I have a problem with audio files. Wave recorded in Reaper on Mac OS. Files are long, about nine hours. And the problem is when the editor wants to open that file in Premiere on Windows, there's an error. Files could not be imported. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, it's probably, a, it depends on the number of tracks that are in those WAV files. Nine hours is a very long file, and file size uh, frequently in WAV files is limited to four gigabytes. So if you find your files are larger than four gigabytes, uh, you might have to divide them up in Reaper and save them out into one hour files each and then reassemble them in your editing software after you get them into uh, into Windows or Premiere. Uh, that might be the best way to go. Or, and if it's like multi-track uh, wave files uh, that are nine hours long, you may have you may have to split them apart into from uh, polyfile to monofiles, which splits the individual channels apart, each one into a separate file. That might be another way to bring it in. Uh, to bring it in as a mono version, and you can use uh, a program like Wave Agent from Sound Devices to split those poly files into mono and still maintain time code if you need to do that in the metadata. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Courtney uh, pr- pretty much covered it. Just keep in mind that a dot wave or even a move file is a um, is a wrapper. There could be some something else inside there. Uh, that it's not happy with. It could be the length of the file, which is exceeding some type of OS issue. Um, If you're working in Premiere on Windows, you might try opening it also in Adobe Audition, uh, since that's a uh, Adobe program, and it might have you give you the opportunity to look inside to see what the cart chunks are doing or the metadata. As Courtney mentioned, uh, there may be something just a little off that needs to be fixed. 
Yeah, it does definitely sounds like a Windows file size issue. Um, the I would I would see if you can open it in Resolve. You can get download a free version of Resolve and just see if it'll open there. Just as just as a eliminate all the options that are there, but it does sound like you're probably going to have to chunk it. Um, see if it's under over uh, four four gig or four is it four gigs four gigs per yeah. And there's you know there, there may be a setting in Reaper. I know that in other applications that we've had that are PC compatible. Uh, there's an auto segmenting that can happen with the files as well. So it'll sit there and just roll roll over that segment when it gets near four gigs. Um, so that's another thing to look at in as a feature. I don't use Reaper enough to know uh, whether that's there or not. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Synesthesia in musicians, Joni, Jewel, and others. What are your favorites? Go, Bill. Synesthesia is an interesting thing. That's basically when one sense kind of triggers another sense. And for a lot of people, uh, particular vocalists, vocal to, to a sensory uh, feeling is pretty common. Uh, it's really the basis of the whole ASMR trendy thing, which is uh, if you hear somebody whispering, it causes kind of that feeling to go up your back, that little, ooh, that's an interesting sensation. Um, I'm not sure that specific musicians have been tied to it as much as specific sounds and things like that. I'd I, maybe it's just I'm ignorant of the fact that people think that uh, Joni Mitchell and Jewel and other female performers uh, provide that that sensory thing for them. It's something about the tones or something about uh, just their perception of the artist. It's hard to say. It's it's a really interesting phenomenon, but it's it's pretty. Um, it's not specific. It's not, you hear this song and you're going to get this response. I think it's pretty individual to people. That's been my experience, at least. Cor- Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, Tori Amos, you get the mixture of that Bosendorfer grand piano with the low notes in there with her whispery, whiny voice is really quite synthesiastic. Synthesiastic. I'm synthesiastic about it. Yes. Tori Amos. <laughs> uh, next, next question. And it's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What do you use to keep a journal or notes if you do this on a daily basis? John. Started off with Microsoft OneNote, which is actually a pretty decent application. Moved from that to Evernote because it was it was compatible on both platforms. And now the same application that everybody else uses, which is Notes, that's built into operating system on iOS and Mac OS. Good, Bill. Yep, that's me, Notes. It's the simplest one. It's on all my devices, and it's the one repository for all of my thinking. I will say, if you are looking for something specific to do this, want a journal or something like that, I flitted for a while with a program called OmWriter. And the thing that I liked about it is it shuts down all sensory perception. There's nothing on your screen except a deep gray page and a place to write. It also has built into it gentle music and you can choose the music. So if you want to kind of if you're the kind of writer who likes to descend into just paying attention to your words and get as many stimulus away from you as possible, your desktop, everything else, uh, I actually enjoyed that for a while. I went back to notes for almost everything because I wanted the one point of reference, but I enjoyed that. So maybe give that a look. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I've been using uh, Google Keep, Keep K-E-E-P, because it uh, is cross-platform if you're not just in the Apple world, uh, you can share it across devices. And it allows voice input, uh, hand-drawn input, picture input, notes, all that kind of good stuff. And it keeps it in a online and in the cloud. So it's accessible from open up your Keep uh, account on any machine and there's all your notes. Go down. 
I've come full circle on this one, actually. I've tried every note-taking system you can imagine. I have an ADD mind that tends to be all over the place, right? Uh, but I come back to basic notes. I use notes because I have my phone everywhere. And if I have a thought that I want to get down, I just go to my notes and I just keep a linear list. And I've come back to old school notepad and I'm happy with it. I've come back to actually analog. I use a pen and paper. I have a linear note system. I just uh, train of consciousness, whatever pops into my mind, I write it down. And there's something about that connection, you know, we're a little bit disconnected in this society and something about the connection with pen and paper that I personally find kind of therapeutic. Yeah, I've been trying to do that. I did get, I went, I used to have, I have notepads and notepads and notepads of notes that when I was designing a lot of pixel core and everything else that I used. And, and so I was like, you know, I could go back to that. And, uh, you know, because when you find them, what's nice about them is they are analog and I didn't lose those files. Like there's, I just found a stack of them in my, in my garage and there's all these old ideas and things that, that I ended up using some of it and so on and so forth. But the problem is I can't, on a day-to-day basis, I, I don't know where that's going to be and carrying that piece of notebook. That's been the hard part for me is that I just find that notes, Apple notes means that whatever device I have opened, I throw stuff into, you know, and I think that the problem is I'm cutting and pasting and putting links into it. And it was hard for me to do, but I do have two notepads over here that I keep on and a fountain pen. I felt like there's something classic about, there was something very organic about a fountain pen with a pen and paper. And I, but I haven't, there's like two pages. I've had it for like three months and there's like two pages of stuff. in it. I keep on, it's, it's aspirational right now. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Chris. It's aspirational. It's also not very searchable. That's the problem with putting stuff on paper. If you can't find it again, what's the point in having it? Well, I have, I, a, I have a solution yeah. for that. Yeah, go, go ahead, Alan. I'm sorry to mean there. No, no. Uh, I have a solution for that. I actually, I keep a, I've actually put a lot of thought into this. And actually to Alex's point, you know, uh, I'm, I'm playing with fountain pens. Uh, just there is something about the tactile aspect of note taking. Problem is, is you don't necessarily have it with you all the time, right? And the problem is actually keeping track of everything. Uh, it's not searchable, like you said. So I personally have a system where I just keep linear notes. I keep one notepad. I start on the left side. I just keep notes, notes, notes. I just keep going linear. And then on the back, on the back side, um, if it's an important note, I just log it. So I have an index on my other side and I can literally go through and search my notes for important thoughts. So my personal system, but like I said, when you have information streams coming in from so many different sources coupled with an ADD brain, right? It's like, it's a hard thing to keep track of so many different thoughts, but a combination of just notes, this is good. The phone is good for, you know, just quick thoughts, but what what happens when you have, you know, more words and you want to be able to write them down quickly? I guess you can do voice to text, which I do sometimes, but something about just, and I would just recommend this, pick up a pen, write it on paper, do it as an exercise. There's something about the human brain that was meant to actually write things down. So. Good. Uh, Mitchell. I'm with Alan. I think that makes sense. I mean, I I do a lot of work, uh, you know, reading copy. So there's always some scrap paper that I can recycle. And uh, the filing system, I agree with Alan. If it's important, you remember it. If you just need to reference a website or a phone number or something else, I'll just grab the paper that's there and say, oh, yeah, that's the phone number. That's the website. And it works well. I know it's not efficient and it's not the best way to do it, but it works for my old uh, adult brain. 
Next question. Next question in from David Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. Do you think that Apple Vision Pro will have user-installed diopter inserts for people who wear glasses, or will they have an optician in the store to fit them? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and when I saw this, they do have uh, custom diopters that are, uh, when you purchase them, you choose the diopter, they will choose the diopter that you need for your eyesight. Maybe you can bring in your prescription from your optometrist to do this, or maybe they'll have an an optometrist-trained uh, genius bar member that will do this for your salesperson. But this, I think, is one of the problems with the design, because this Vision Pro then makes it a singular person. It's tied to one person. And you can't, you know, if you're paying 3,500 bucks for something and you have a family, your family may want to share in that. But if they, it, if it has prescription lenses for one person and you cannot wear it with glasses because it can't do the eye tracking through your glasses. And this may be the problem of why it has to have these precision uh, diopters uh, that you have to purchase and insert or not purchase, but at least obtain individual diopters for each eye and have them inserted when you buy the thing. Because then I think it probably has to be calibrated. Maybe it affects the eye tracking and it has to be calibrated then for the eye tracking for that particular set of diopters. That means you can't, you know, here, here, look at this. You can't do that. Uh, if anyone has any type of prescription, you know, anything other than 2020 normal vision. So if they can't come up with some way to do an adjustable diopter by the time the thing is released, I think that could be a major hindrance in sales, uh, especially to families. I, I think they'll probably sell as many as they can make. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Uh, there is actually a guest mode that disables some of this. I think it's going to work like this. If you're buying it for a particular use, let's say that you have something that you do every day and you need to be in that virtual world, you can customize this with the diopters that were mentioned. They're they're lenses that insert, they have a place for them in the machine. But if you get a stock one, I think there's some adjustability. Um, And then a guest mode allows somebody to use other than your settings. So I know that's built into the operating system the way it is. Uh, and that's also how they're going to be able to do it for the people who are going into the Apple stores, get an appointment and want to try it out. The Apple Genius Bar people or whomever will set you up so that you have the best possible experience and take a look at whether or not it works for you and the tasks you have for it. Next question. Douglas Carmichael here with a question. I like the design of the MarkerTech trailers. Are there any competitors with trailers of a similar design? Uh, I mean, there's other people that make trailers. You know, like it's not it's not the only these aren't the only trailers you can get. I I, I will show you a couple couple of things that kind of I I used to own one, um, and uh, so this is what it used to look like before we had one. So we would have like we would rent rent a U-Haul. Uh, truck and uh, or a van and we just put a bunch of gear in the back and uh, that worked for a little while but as we started to grow up um, this is what ours looked like so this is the Markertech trailer that that you're talking about here um, now we made some we made a lot of adjustments to it so there's a couple things that you know the raw version doesn't have so we added all that speed rail so um, so we the speed rail that goes around that d- doesn't come with the, the trailer the trailer has is on its own here so um, and the advantage of, of all the speed rail is a, we could get up to it that, that didn't exist before. Also we had extra speed rail. And so we could, if we wanted to go over, let's say this is a walkway and we want to get wires over here, we could actually extend this out. We just l- literally r- attach a speed rail to it 
and it's and 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 run it out here and then drop our cables over so we had a lot of you know kind of uh, a lot of really interesting things that we could do with that top area we tied a lot of things to it and so on and so forth so that was the exterior um, and then, uh, this is what it looked like inside. Um, and we really packed it. Um, so this is a, a Nat Geo thing that we did, but we, one of the things we did is we added all of these, um, monitors to the side. And usually we were, we were talking about this the other day. This is how we would manage the, the audio, the, the video. So we would have, this is one, one audio is in, one audio is out. So we're looking at the stream and looking at what we're in, ingesting in there. And we would have that for every feed, or sometimes we'd have extra things for the clients, and we packed about if it, you know, you'd be surprised what we could, what we could pack in here. Here's a kind of a more, a lighter shot of this. And here you can see like what we're looking at here are the scopes. And it tells us if it's, if this is all purple that we're running too uh, low. <laughs> so, um, and what you want to see is kind of this, but we, but we added all these monitors to the sides. Um, we also re-ripped out all their, their tables and put, we went to Ikea and got these bigger tables. Um, that gave us a lot more space um, to, to work with. Um, I think I have a better, or there's a wider shot of it. So you can kind of see that we had these two tables here and then these front tables here. Um, we, we added this uh, whiteboard to it. We had a little area you could sit in the back. And then we added um, a 100 amp uh, three phase um, power supply to it and some big, you know, so we, we beefed it up a fair bit more than what was there. I can't, we did look a lot before we, we found it. We didn't find anything else that was better. And then again, with our adjustments, we felt like it was a, it was probably one of the better ones that were out there. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I, here's the thing about something that do yourself versus a commercial product. Typically in commercial products, they design it year one and then they get feedback from their customers. They make changes and they make changes and they make changes. So the product evolves over the course of its first few years of selling. And I've always found that to be a real boon when you're looking for something as opposed to I'm going to do this for the first time and I'm going to make it the way I want, but I'm not getting that iterative process to make it better. And there's always when you design something the first time, you look back and you go, oh, there's a flaw. I would have done that differently if I'd known then what I know now. So I'm a great believer that if you're looking for that kind of thing, a commercial solution that is proven over time, like Marker Tech building trailers, which they've done for 25 years, um, will get you more of those hidden things solved correctly than trying to do it yourself. My philosophy anyway. And they get to interact with clients like us. So they, yeah, I, exactly. We, they, Marker Tech came by, they saw the trailer and they came by at NAB because we were, we used this trailer for a, for a 360 shoot for um, Nokia in 2016. And they, and, and Marker Tech came by and, and uh, they saw the trailer and um, suddenly a whole bunch of people from Marker Tech came by and started taking pictures of our trailer <laughs> looking at it now because what, what they gave us was good, a good skeleton. And then we had re retrofitted it to make it probably twice the trailer that w of what came without a lot of expense. What is nice is that they do have a lot of the power stuff handled. They have the racking that's, that's available on that. Um, so that made things a lot easier, but we then had, we then adjusted it pretty dramatically to get it to what we want, but it was a good skeleton. And again, I haven't seen anything. I wouldn't want to start with a raw, um, a raw trailer. That would be a nightmare. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, Alex, if you don't mind, I'm curious about sure. some some details about it. So you said it had the racking. Uh, looking in your control room, when you're sitting in your control room, were you looking to the front of the trailer or the back of the trailer? So you're looking at the front. So the, uh, well, you're looking at the back of the trailer here. So this is, there's a racks, um, there are racks here 
that we, you know, we, we attached monitors in front of a lot of the racks, but there's racks all here and there's mm-hmm. a table here and there's some more racks down here. So that's where the racks were. And that's the back of the trailer. There's actually another. So when I don't you open up a, the back door, you have access to all the patching. Yeah. There's actually another, uh, four feet, I think, four or five feet behind this, behind this, mm-hmm. that is, we could actually put an audio, oftentimes the audio engineer would sit in, in there. So there's another place, there's another station that I don't have a picture of easily. Uh, in I between those it. monitors and the racks? In between, no, no, but in between these monitors and the back door, there is another, there's like a whole little cavity back there. That, gotcha, that's, gotcha. So, so you have in the back, behind, behind these racks, you have access to all the wiring, but you also could put a whole nother, I think it's, it's probably closer to six feet behind it that that's back there that you can um so you have access to all these racks we had power in the back over here so we could and there's a little mouse uh, mouse hole to the side of there so we could run literally run the um shore power you know the 100 amp three phase or whatever into it and then oftentimes we'd redistribute it to everybody else because that way we could control it and then, um, but then there's also another behind the rack, there's an, there's another table back here. Yeah. And oftentimes you put an audio engineer back there so, instead. So if those racks are, are bifurcating, uh, just, just mm-hmm. a note to the panel, it's the first time Chris Vanek's ever said that word out loud. <laughs> if, 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 the, if those racks are cutting the compartment in half, or not it's in not half, in half, but it's, dividing it's, it, yeah. understood. How do you get at the front of those racks? Because I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, you put a, uh, uh, what is it? Sh- shuttle. Uh, you well, put a recorder the in there. You got to touch the front of it, but you have to patch the back of it. Well, what we would do is we would, um, if you looked at it, I mean, all of our all of our recorders are right here. That and there's a desk okay. right here, so people are sitting there and they just reach out and and touch. Okay. You know, so okay. we would. It's where you put them. You know, and here's some here's other recorders. So we okay. we found that putting these big 55 inch monitors up there, that's what the TD liked. I mean, that's what Nate liked. <laughs> so, so Nate 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 would use this this thing and just say, "Well, I like this, and I like this, and I like this," and we would keep on taking notes, and then we would come back and try to. So when you bought it raw, it had the racks, it had some tables. You replaced most of the tables. We replaced the front table we left because it was kind of part of the racks, but the okay. back table, the two back tables we took out because they were too small. Um, and so they, they just didn't go as long. They, they, they created more egress. I'm sure they created a legal amount of egress <laughs> um, that down the side, but the problem is it didn't give us a lot of table space and we didn't, we felt like it was more than we needed. So we went to Ikea and bought, I don't think we got exactly the right length, but what we did is, you know, when you have guys from the island model shop that, that are friends of yours, you just hand them some raw tables and say, I want this to go in here. And then we said, oh, there's a little area in the back. You can kind of see it here. There was a, there's a right down here in this little corner. You'll see that was, that's a seat. And it actually had little compartments underneath that we could hide food and all kinds of other stuff in it. But people could sit back there too. So, and we built that custom for it. And then again, those are the kind of things that, um, Marker took, Mar- I don't know if they ever did anything with it, but they definitely took a lot of photos <laughs> you know, of what we did. And we made it a much more usable, and we use yeah, this, fi- this, this trailer probably once a week. Yeah, yeah, I find truck design to be super fascinating. There was a guy in the San Francisco Bay Area named Skip Long who designed probably the most premier truck of the 80s. And it was interesting because what he did it, doing sports is he went to all of the best TDs, the best Chiron operators, the best tape ops. And he just grilled them, just grilled them. What do you need? What, what's wrong in the other trucks? And he built a truck that was like the number one truck in Northern California for a decade. It was great. Yeah. I mean, that's the way to do it. As you talk to people who, you know, you don't try to think about it. You don't take notes looking at it. 
you go to the people who are using it and ask them questions. Um, and, you know, and the best thing to do is to build them, iter- like if you're going to build a bunch of them is build them iteratively, build one and have people use it and complain about it and then build it again, you know, and then, and then figure it out. So it's, it's a, I mean, this is just a tiny little trailer. You know, I, I, I always knew that we were the cute little trailer compared to the trucks that we did rent when we needed to do bigger events. Um, yeah. But it, it was good. The one thing that we had that it was self-contained UPS so that it was a relatively light trailer. It could run basic shows really, really well. And you could lose power, <laughs> which we couldn't do with the big truck. Uh, the big truck needed a, a cat outside to, you know, a cat generator outside to keep it going. Um, next question. Next one in from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. How can we as viewers support the writers and actors strikes? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, that's a tough one. I guess you could support them on social media with, you know, stirring uh, uh, messages. Uh, I would not boycott uh, streaming of any of the majors because then that just reinforces their their excuse that, hey, we're not making enough money on streaming, see? You know, and that just makes it even worse for negotiations. Uh, the sad thing is that the, the actors and uh, a lot of the writers as well, you know, they're negotiating for these contract wages and they're upgrading the wages, you know, somewhat every year, but it's not keeping up with the rate of inflation. So it effectively is a rate reduction in the new contract. And the problem is with residuals, the ability to uh, calculate uh, the amount of residuals based on the amount of return or profit from a particular uh, show is uh, gotten difficult with streaming because they're not willing to share the metrics of how much a, how much of their streaming income is attributed to what device what uh, particular shows. So until they agree on a way to do all of that, it's going to be kind of up in the air. Uh, so I don't know if other than just moral support, I don't know of any way to uh, offer your support to the actors. Um, I th- and I think, you know, a good thing to know is, as you can state, is that only about 5% of those 160,000 actors, uh, performers that are on strike there, earn a living uh, from that uh, profession without a second job or a third job, you know. Uh, so only a very small per- percentage, about 5%, can actually earn a living at that at the current wage structure that's there. I go ahead, Mitchell. I would say vote with your wallet. I mean, that's the only way you're going to get the attention of the big streamers out there. And if they slack off their programming because the strike is affecting them, uh, they're going to feel it. They're going to feel it on their bottom line. That's going to force them to do something. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. (laughs) I don't think there's anything that we can do individually that's going to make any difference. Um, This is a pretty uh, complicated um, and messy thing. I don't think there's anything that, that we would do. I think that it may last a very long time. I'm going to guess that I'd say it's 50, 50 chance it'll go into 2024. Um, you know, it's a pretty important, uh, set of agreements that have to be made there. And, um, the hard part is, is that in the past you had television and film companies really pushing for, uh, folks to make a deal because they were like, Hey, we've got to release the fall schedule. Um, the streamers, you know, can sit on their back catalog for a long time. And so I think that's going to be the big challenge. Um, next question. Next question from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Is there a quality difference between AJA and Black Magic converters? Go ahead, Mitchell. That's a tough question. I mean, I, you could put them on a scope or check their specs. 
But for the converters, I'm not necessarily talking about the bigger stuff that they all make. I somehow feel the AJA devices are a little more solid and a little more reliable just because I have more experience with them. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I think the decimator products, which isn't one of the two you mentioned, uh, are a lot more versatile than either of those two uh, because they handle variable frame rate and a whole bunch of different uh, you know, flavors of HD and SD and HD, SDI and H, HDR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're a little more versatile. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, we've had trouble. I've had many of both. Um, and I have the, the Blackmagic ones are generally more cost effective. Uh, generally, the, the build quality on the AJAs are, is a little higher on, in some cases, but a lot of the Blackmagic stuff has come up to speed really fast. Uh, uh, we've had, but we've had uh, probably an equal number of issues with both. <laughs> so I don't think that I've never, and, and, I, and I will admit just from a cost perspective, I probably had a lot more Blackmagic hardware. So it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to say. Um, but there are, the thing you have to look at is there are things that you can and can't do with the different converters. And so you have to also, um, you know, figure that out as well. Um, next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. The Zato by Atomos was mentioned. Are there other hardware switching devices that take USB video natively? Yeah, so this is the Zato that um, I haven't tested yet, but I'm I'm figuring out right now. And this is a little monitor that will stream. Um, I didn't know that it would um, actually switch. I think, oh, it does. It does picture in picture. So if you have an HDMI input and a little webcam, you can actually go picture in picture with this little guy. Um, and I think you might be able to cut between them too. So I'm going to figure that out too. But, I, you know, again, I'm just getting my head around it. Um, um, so I, uh, but it's a, it, the build quality is much higher than I expected, to be honest with you, for the cost. Um, and so it's plastic, but it's it's also um, uh, again it's it's pretty it's a pretty slick little little device. So I I bought it because someone else was talking about it, and I figured, well, I'll buy it and I'll send it back if I don't like it. But I don't know if this is going to go home. What, um, what was the cost, Alex? I think it was two ninety nine. So so for for a little monitor that's two ninety nine that also streams that also does conversion. What I my big thing is I'll probably send it back if I can't get UVC control from the computer to the to the webcam. It's not useful to me if I can't get both of those things to work. So, so anyway, so, um, uh, well, well, that's the part. If, if I can, if that'll work, I'm going to keep it. Go ahead, Mitchell. Do you think they're chasing the, uh, what is it? The yellow box, the little, um, yellow device. I don't think Atomos is chasing yellow box. I don't think, uh, or yellow, yellow. I don't think that they're chasing anything. I think they're just, they're just making things that they think will serve the market. You know, I think that they're kind of not, if, if, if Atomos is chasing anything, it's probably the, you know, they're former black magic folks. So they're probably aiming at black magic more than anything else, but they're adding their own feature set. They, they definitely have their own way of doing things and what they think is important, which is great for us. Next question. Next one in from Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. Is there anecdotal support for the idea that a video converter and interface that runs hot tends to not last as long as those that operate at a lower temperature? Any stories regarding hot running equipment failing? I go ahead, Courtney. I haven't seen that. I've been using the decimator products, which have this cast aluminum case, which is a great uh, way to dissipate heat. And they have heat sinks built into them that are flush with the back of the case. So if you you don't want to stack a bunch of them up and set them on top of each other, you want some airflow around them anyway. And I have not, I don't have any stories. You know, the only thing, you know, some of these, uh, not not the uh, melees, but some of the stick PCs I've run into problems with. When they get hot, uh, they throttle down. Uh, so that might be a problem. I haven't had anything 
get so hot as to where the, you know, surface mounted chips fall off or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I doubt they will ever get that hot because uh, if they're doing that, they're dissipating so much heat, they'd be, you know, dragging your power supply down and the power supply wouldn't be able to provide enough current to get them that hot. You know? Go, Bill. I wonder if that's a reflection back to the old days with uh, literally the wiring of transistors and diodes and resistors and things like that to, to boards. Uh, we used to often open up something that wasn't working and find next to the little wire traces a resistor with a brown circle around it that obviously had overheated and kind of let out the, the gas of life, so to speak. Uh, I, I haven't seen much of that happening in the new uh, system on a chip era where everything is kind of pre-built. Uh, packages and you don't get those discrete components anymore. So I'm not sure. I I like the fact that things don't run hot and I worry when they do run hot. But I think that's probably a leftover from that era when you could burn devices up pretty easy. Yeah, I mean we've definitely seen we feel like the that the moisture like so humid uh, temperatures as well as heat definitely shorten the life of 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 the equipment that we use and that's why our riders are pretty um specific about that, that uh, we expect the room to be 75 degrees or lower or the ability to manage that, or we oftentimes won't build into it. Um, next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. Alex, how well did the Ikea tables hold up on the road? Yeah, these are the the tables that he's talking about here. So these are the, the Kia. All we got were tabletops. So you can buy tabletops in Ikea. And we got those tabletops and then we put them back onto the, the pieces that, that fit into the, into the, the, the old tables were on. So we didn't really, re- we were not using the, the IKEA legs and they worked uh, perfectly. There was no, never any issue with the, with the tables. Next question. From Alan Hawks in Houston, Texas. And here in our panel, what do you recommend for lighting setup for these broadcasts? Uh, Mitchell's mind lighting setup in particular looks great. Any suggestions? Good, Mitchell. Um, I started out with a good camera, an FX3, and I started out with a decent key light, but the community basically helped me get everything. Every light in here uh, actually came from a suggestion from Sunny, whether it's uh, the nan light that I have over here that's doing the filling uh, or the hair light, be that as it may, uh, or the uh, the blue splash that's happening over there is from Chris Fenwick. Um, it's, a, it's a group effort, so... If you participate, you're good. You're, there's a good chance you're going to get a lot of good advice, and that will improve the quality. Go, Bill. Yeah, it's never been easier to find because there's so much LED lighting nowadays that is decent. I mean, not fabulous, but decent. And you, you can get down into some of the stuff on eBay that's you know nine dollars a light or something like that, and that stuff can fail pretty easily, even if it's something with an LED light source or a, a chip light source. But most of the things now coming out of uh, the Pacific Rim in terms of low cost lighting is pretty decent. So anything that makes light, if you learn to shape it well and learn to control it can now be an asset so you don't have to spend a ton as we used to have to go ahead chris uh i just want to mention about lighting i literally just today so i i've completely modified my lighting hopefully it looks roughly the same because i was able to get rid of this big giant flag that i was using to minimize the amount of blue over here and i did it with this $25 purchase, and so I'm not using a Nanlite, although this is for the Nanlite. I'm actually using the um, Elgato key lights, which are 
fairly popular. I know some people here use them. But this $25 thing, it's, it Velcros around the front of the, the thing and it uh, the, the light fixture. It, you know, uh, if you don't know, it's an egg crate thing. It kind of snoots it down in an interesting way without being big and bulky. And now I have a lot more room for activities and crazy arm gestures over this direction. So you may see me answering questions where I do this a lot more because I can. But anyway, I got rid of a huge flag, 25 bucks, works great on the Elgados. And for me, you know, I, I mostly look at, at a, uh, a a larger source. I think I've shown this before, but this is what I, this is my view of the show. Um, and what you saw here is I used um, here I, I use Maker Pipe. Um, so this is this is these are relatively inexpensive um, little uh, Maker Pipe makes these, and then I, then this is just EMT rail, and so all of this whole grid is all made from EMT rail and and this Maker Pipe um, these make, Maker Pipe connections, and so this is about a five foot by three foot piece. Um, that's there. And then I just hung some diffusion. I think that was like 15. I think this whole thing cost about $30 or something in pieces. Um, and then, but there are three NAN lights back behind it that are pulled away a little bit so that they just kind of are softly hitting that. And so that's what the, now this is all white. So there's a little bit of bounce there. Um, this is the hair light that's attached to the, to the rig that's, that's attached to the grid that I built. Um, again, and then there's, for me, there's all in the corners, I've got, um, C-stands, that hold this whole thing up. And so I can move, if I want to, I can move that whole rig up and down. Um, so I can, you know, with the C-stands, I can move them up and down. So I want to work on it. I bring it down, do some work on it, and then I put it back up again. It's not high. It's not too high. So I can do most of it on my own, but uh, I can bring it you know, down if I need to. Interesting, Alex, that photo that you showed uh-huh. looks very much like the bridge of the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> well, you know, I, so when we had our, our guests on last week, uh, you know, I've, I think I mentioned that I wanted to look, I wanted to look like the enterprise. I do have an idea of, of like cleaning this up, you know, like I like the look of it. And so I've been thinking about really building this out so that I have, this is all sound panels, you know, like I want to make it all sound panels with a, with a rig down here and then really build these monitors up. And so it'll look even more like the Millennium Falcon than it than it does right now. So yeah, I, I, it does look close. I didn't, you know, I have to admit, I, 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 I <laughs> That was the first add, thing I thought of when I saw that picture. You know, I, like, oh, that's the Millennium Falcon. I think I could add, if I added Nerd. just some, if I added those windows and then I have to have monitors behind it so that I can do the whole jump to hyperspace, I think that would be, uh, that would be perfect. Um, I don't know why I wasn't, uh, why, why, why I hadn't thought of that already. Sorry. Anyway, um, uh, just a quick reminder that we've got a lot of great stuff coming up this week. Um, the uh, on tomorrow we're going to talk about high end interfaces, um, and so we're going to look at the Antelope Galaxy sixty four uh, Synergy Core uh, in the ATEM microphone converter. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Thursday, Jeffrey Orthwine and Andy Sullivan. We had them on um, in a. Uh, uh, we had them on oh, maybe a year ago, getting ready for shooting their movie. So they were shooting a a, a, um, a, a film uh, about vampires, um, and and they were and so the, we, there was some prep, and Jeffrey kind of walked us through the prep, and now they've shot it. They've been doing post, and uh, and so they're going to be coming back and, and hanging out with us and talking a little bit about it. Um, on Friday, we're going to talk about loading and loading out. It may seem like a simple problem. You got to get our group. Um, is able to talk about gaff tape for an hour. So we're going to talk about loading in and loading out. And <laughs> have an often. <laughs> we have. Uh, yeah, exactly. So so we're going to be talking um, really about how to get in and out of buildings. It, 
is more complicated than it seems. And uh, we'll talk about some of the techniques to make sure that that is as smooth as possible. So stay tuned for that. Um, and then uh, Saturday, we have disability inclusion in, in, in employment. And you really want to check out the Saturdays. The Saturdays have become this really interesting, um, you know, collection of uh, folks that, that are, you know, we have um, deaf panelists, we have uh, ASL going on as well as great conversations. And I think we're really pushing a new envelope of that process. And so it's definitely worth checking out. Also remember that the, the um, re, what we used to call the reader workshop is happening today at noon uh, Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. And that's a great way if you want to practice being a panelist, being a host, being a reader, uh, you can get on there and, and um, you know, kind of get your um, you know, practice a little bit. Sundays are also a great day to practice. So you can come on and, and just jump on and be part of the panel there as well. So um, definitely try to check that out. And we're now jumping into the second hour and talking about uh, generative AI uh, in Photoshop specifically because it's it's got kind of a cool setup there that, that I thought that it would be uh, worth at least giving people a preview of. I don't, without your questions, I don't know how long we'll talk about this, but I really felt like it was worth, um, you know, having the discussions, people know it's there and know what it does. Um, you know, I think that, you know, as we move towards it, there's, of course, we've had generative AI um, discussions in the past around mid-journey and, and Dolly and other things like that. Um, but Photoshop is taking a different route, which is really allowing you to have a lot more control over how you do the generative AI. So mid-journey is a little bit of a, you tell mid-journey to do something and then you hope it doesn't. <laughs> and and uh, what Photoshop does is allows you to start um, being a little bit more specific uh, about what you're, what you're actually doing. And we'll show a couple examples of that. Um, Mitch, do you want to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Chris, go ahead. Uh, is this the portion of the program where we show examples? It sure is. It sure okay. is. Okay. Awesome. So uh, this is a document that I, uh, that I have on my computer, and it's called um, John Preto Loves AI.psd. And um, it is, it started with an empty canvas, and I, and I started in Photoshop with a, literally a blank canvas, and I just type, I select all, and I said, uh, sunset on the beach at night, or evening. I guess sunset at night, that sounds weird. I can't remember the exact prompt. Actually, I could tell you the exact prompt because if I click on this, it tells you beach at sunset. That's the prompt that I did. And when I did, it gave me this image. Now, I'm a little unclear. Y'all can answer for me. Is this an image that exists someplace or is this drawing something? Drawing it from like scratch. Really drawing from scratch? Really? Yep. yep. Okay, so... So that's the first thing it did. And then I thought, well, let's, let's do this. Uh, and this prompt is called uh, School of Dolphins Swimming. And what I did is I selected a little portion of the, the thing, the, the image. I just drew a bounding box around it. And this is what it gave me. It just drew the School of Dolphins Swimming. All right. That was the next prompt. And then the next prompt was I wanted to put a seashell in. So I said seashell in dark light. And I drew a little bounding box down here. And when I did that, it gave me this. Oh, look at that. Now I did, I will admit, I changed it to a pin light and I pulled the opacity down a little bit so it looked even darker. A little bit of a hackery there. I'm sure there's smarter ways to do that if I knew what I was doing. Uh, then the next prompt I did was single sailboat on the horizon at sunset. Okay, so I was realizing that if you get a little bit more 
uh, uh, detailed, it will do better. And this is what it gave me. And what's interesting is you could see around the sailboat as I turn it on and off, it's actually redrawing. Oops, uh, this don't say oops on my show. It's redrawing the ocean. It's redrawing the sky. It's not just placing a silhouette on the on the water. Okay. Next prompt was uh, I thought it'd be fun to make it bigger, so I said extension of beach at sunset. And at first, I just went sideways. Okay, so I I made it twice as wide or something like that. And then there was this little, uh, you made fun of me last time I gave this demo, this gradu, this little thing in the corner over there. So I said, remove that, and it took that away. But but that actually, that little bit of um, stuff over there inspired me because I grew up in Southern California, and you can't you can't uh, go to the beach in Southern California without seeing an oil rig. So I added, a, a, I, the prompt there was offshore oil rig at sunset on horizon. And then I made the, the thing white, uh, uh, I increased the foreground and I removed this little gradu down over there. The prompt for that was, uh, uh, I don't know what it was. It was remove gradu or something like that. So anyway, that allegedly is something that doesn't exist in real life that Photoshop allegedly drew from scratch. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it is a, uh, it, especially for what I'm really, what I think is really interesting about I've, you know, I've used some of the bits and pieces of it. What I think is really interesting is from a concept per perspective of being able to throw together an idea. You know, maybe you're going to use it in the final version. Maybe you're not. But being able to throw together an idea. Let me show you another one here. Um, this is, uh, let's see if I can. Uh, so if you look at this, this is just me hacking something out. So I go, okay, well, um, you know, so this is um, just some basic colors in, in Photoshop again. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to click on this masking tool and I'm going to go up to fill and I I know my my thing is on the other side so I'm going to pull this over so under edit I opened up fill and here this is a little bit of a hack because we're in the beta and so what I can do is go in and I say I want to do a color and I set this color randomly black to seventy percent so um, this is a, this is how programmers hack things when they don't have an interface so so anyway so you put in seventy percent. I hit OK and hit OK here. And then I'm going to turn this mask so that now it opens up and wants to do a generative fill. And I can say, I want a river uh, flowing past a cliff. And all I've had here is some roughed out uh, direction here. And I hit generate and it's going to kind of work on it. So it's this is, instead of just saying I want something here, I'm actually kind of blocking out uh, what I want it to look like, um, or where I want it to go. And, um, so it's looking at that image. Um, it's again, there's a little bit of a hack there, um, that in the selection. And again, that's just how a programmer goes, well, I don't have a button for that yet, but I'm just going to put that in, just put 70% in. There you go. Oh, <laughs> so, my yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, that is like, when I saw that, that was like, and, and that's, you know, again, there'll be a button for that at some point, but the, the, the one of the programmers, what would that button be called Alex? I don't know. It'll be like, I don't know, uh, blocking or, or something. I don't know what the button will be called when it's done, but that's a, that was something that someone from Adobe put up on Twitter. You know, like I just saw it on Twitter and I was like, what the what? You know, and... Um, Can, uh, um, so I didn't know where you were going when you started that explanation. Could yeah, you, you do, could you explain that again? Sure. What was the 70, the 30%? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, you now thought that we I know where you're going, we know... Yeah, exactly. What let's back up for. again. So let's go back to this. So this is this I just drew with my paintbrush. 
And, um, and then what I did is I clicked on this little button here. Um, so this is, uh, so I click on that there. And then I go up to fill. Um, I opened up fill. And I go to color. And I set, I just type in 70. It has to be 70% as far as I know. Like it, it, this is a, a coder saying, if I see this, do the next thing. Like it's not like it's so, so you're not, um, you're just, I'm, I, I, there's no good reason for that. It's just that that's where they put it and they put it on Twitter. Like, Hey, I did this thing and hit okay. And then I turn that off and it says, okay, you want to generate a fill. And then I say, I want that to be a river, um, uh, flowing past a cliff. And then I hit generate. So, And if I, you know, redrew this, I don't know if we have enough time. Maybe we have time. I'll do it again. But if I redrew it, the river going another direction, it'll just do, do another direction. <laughs> like it'll, it'll, you know, and so when it comes to being able to, you know, this is where this is going though. This is where this whole world is going to go when it comes to concepting ideas, building backgrounds. Um, we're going to be able to see and look at it came up with a completely different one, but it still has the cliff kind of where I had it here. It has the water. So it'll be different every time I do it. Um, in fact, there's, there's a couple different versions of it, right? So, but they're all following that, that basic, you know, layout that I gave it, um, that's there. And, but they're just different versions of that, of that piece there. And, um, this is a, again, this is a preview to what's about to happen. And, and this is why I wanted to bring it up and show it is, um, and, and to talk about it, there's, I'll show a couple other examples, but, but it is a, the idea, a lot of people worry about, you know, the displacement of, of workers and people will be displaced. Every time you see a new technology, a bunch of people get displaced. And so that's, that's something we have to kind of um, know that that's going to happen. But, it, you know, there's not a lot of tape ops anymore in the same way that there were. And there's not a lot of people who have to do, you know, there's a whole lot of things that we don't do anymore. But what I will say is the, the possibility of people being able to be creative, that all these people who have ideas about the next movie they want to do or the next thing that they want to do and they just need another background, they just need something else, the ability for them just to reach out and just create it is going to go through the roof. I mean, we're talking, this is still a infantile version of what's going to happen, of being able to block something out and it just kind of builds it, you know, uh, is, is going to be something that's pretty... Um, uh, profound uh, as far as people's ability to create that content. Uh, it also means that content itself may not be as valuable. And that's why we have strikes and stuff like that, because no one knows how much it's going to be worth in 10 years because it, the content may be near worthless, um, you know, because of the hyperinflation that's going to be created by people being able to, being able to create at will. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I am gobsmacked by what you're showing me. To be honest with you, I haven't had a lot of time to play with it. And I know a workflow in Photoshop because I've been using it for, what, 30 or 40 years. This completely revolutionizes everything you do. And you can do it in layers and you can add it and you can subtract it and you can experiment. And that's the one thing that's interesting about major steps in digital technology is now you have the time, the time to experiment with things until you get it exactly where you want. Because usually in the past, you'd work hard on a solution, like to do that river, uh, matching it to some stock footage. It might have taken me a half an hour, an hour to get it there. You did it in, what, two minutes? So that's yeah. that's the sea change. And that's if you had the skill, too. I mean, remember that this is going to be uh, something that everyone's going to have, and it's not going to be, and again, I don't, 
when you want something specific, when you're doing visual effects, there's, I don't, I see this taking a little bit longer. Now, if you just need a background, then maybe that's going to be enough. Um, but, but I still think that there's going to be a lot of times when you need to have that high end skill to really make this work perfectly. Um, so I don't think this is a replacement for high end artists, but being able to mock something out like that and just say, well, then there's a river and then I could go, you know, cause this is now, you know, something that I can work with, you know, I can say, okay, I want to, let's see, let's go ahead and go ahead. Um, I'll let Alan talk while I figure something out. That's all good. I'm, I'm just looking at this again. Um, I was actually a photographic retoucher back in the day. That's what I did for many, many years. That's how I made my living. And I'm looking at this now. I, I don't really do it much anymore, but I'm looking at the implications of what I'm seeing. I played around with Photoshop along the lines, the beta, along the lines of what Alex uh, just showed and what Chris was doing. And I, I don't know if people, <laughs> it's still hard for me to process what I'm looking at. To call this a disruptive technology is a massive understatement. And I'm thinking, I love it and I hate it, right? What do I love about it? I love about it, if I think about it from an entrepreneurial perspective, if I think about it from a director perspective, I love it. But if I think about it from an artist perspective, there's things that I actually hate about it. Because I'll tell you, there's an entire generation of retouchers out there who who base their... Um, livelihood on what they're doing and their entire portfolio has just been trivialized, right? It's like, oh, did AI do that? No, I put blood, sweat, and tears into trying to figure out how to do this for a living, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it, so it's kind of has some pretty serious psychological implications. But um, as a as a creator, uh, I think, you know, I'm always trying to create more than I have a budget or means for. And when I think of it from that aspect, it's like, wow, this is an insanely powerful tool. I'm using generative AI all the time. I'm using chat GPT now all the time. It's just become a part of my, uh, my tool set. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think but, that's in, in many things that that's where it comes down to. I look at a, I mean, we're going to try to bring a, <clears throat> a friend of mine on named Paul Houston, who pretty much worked at ILM from almost day one. And mm -hmm. you'll see pictures of him in light and magic. I'll, I'll see you. I'll like, there's Paul. And he's working on physical models. Right. So he's working. He's he was in the model shop. He's working on physical models and he's and he's painting them and everything else. When I met him, he was in uh, he was in the uh, digital mat. So he had gone from models to digital mat. And and um, and so he was now doing he was taking the skills that he had in models and now applying it to digital. So a lot of people in the model shop didn't end up only the very best stuck around because the model shop got smaller and um he moved to digital mat. The last time I had coffee with him, maybe a year ago or so, he's doing Unreal Engine. Like he's, he's now, he's taken all the stuff that he knows and he's applying it to real-time 3D, you know, and, and he's been, you know, again, he started in the 70s doing, uh, you know, doing models and he just keeps moving with the technology forward. And I think that that as artists, we really have to think about, we cannot rely on the, the, the really the killer is relying on the skill that you had before, you know, that you have to be looking at in our industry and in, in the world coming up in general, you have to look at where you are as a stepping stone to the next thing. And you have to keep on one of the reasons we do this every day <laughs> is to keep on looking at the next thing. You know, what is the next? And that's why we're doing this is that let's look at the next thing. Let's look at, think about how we can take advantage of it now, um, as opposed to, you know, trying to hang on to the past. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've 
We've seen this in our industry many times. And one of the things I like about getting a little older and experiencing a little bit more is you see the fractals, you see the the repetition. I remember uh, when I used to uh, work on the Computer Chronicles show, when Adobe came and showed uh, layer effects for the first time in Photoshop, you know, like just one click, drop shadow, you know, <laughs> adjust the opacity, adjust how, how broad it was. I don't remember you know, being blown away. It's like, oh my goodness, that just took away 12 clicks I used to do. Right. You know, uh, and that's okay. Things change. I was explaining to my wife, uh, because of my black magic doesn't like being on for more than two years in a row. Uh, and constantly, I now have to unplug it at night. I just, I just yank the power and then I just plug it back in. I explained to my wife, I go that turning on of the camera that used to take engineers Two guys, two grown adults, two engineers, well-trained, 30 minutes per camera when I used to work at KQED eons ago. Yeah. So if we had a four-camera cooking show, the engineers had to show up two hours before anybody else just so the cameras would be on when we got there. Right. And yes, things change, and it's, and it's, it's okay. It's okay, but if you are comfortable living in the the bell curve of your industry, just being that, you know, that guy in the middle who just shows up and turns on the prompter, uh, you're in trouble. That's why you want to be somebody like Courtney who like invents the prompter and then invents all the little boxes that make it work better. You know, so you have to, you have to be in that like top crust, that top, you know, two or and, 3% and you'll and be one okay thing, like your model shop friend. And the one thing that I will say is that the, the thing that doesn't change is the development of your eye your eye on, on taking a look like what I've worked with Alan for a long time. And what, you know, what Alan brings is an eye that is better than mine. <laughs> like, you know, that, that I know that he's going to be worried about things that I'm not worried about. When you look at an Apple ad, when you look at a lot of things, a lot of the graphics that you see are not hard to make. Like Apple doesn't make, doesn't do things that are really hard. It just takes taste. <laughs> like it just requires a lot of taste to get it just right and to get the flow just right. It's not about the motion curves. It's not about, it's understanding. And, you know, a lot of people will put things together and someone who's really got taste will sit there and go, this doesn't feel quite right. Like, and, and I'll, be, I'll be honest, when we, we say that visual effects, um, you know, one of the reasons people hate CG or whatever is because they're like, oh, I really, that, that film was, didn't use any CG. What that film didn't use any CG, what that means is we spent the time and money to get the physics right. And we spent the time and money to get the comps right, um, you know, in the digital effects that we added because there were digital effects all through it. And there's all these other things, but we didn't do it cheaply. Um, or we didn't do it. We might've spent a lot of money on a film, but we got the physics correct. If you look at like an avatar, they spent the money that was required to get every little thing right. So it felt, even though it was all CG, it felt real. Um, you know, Tenet has lots of digital effects, you know, and, but then there's ones that don't quite get over that, but that's an eye, that's taste. That is something there. And so it's not, and so AI isn't going to fix that, you know, like, um, well, I'm, it fix it a little bit. I will say that AI has a lot of taste because it's looking at other people's good taste. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, there's a lot of lawsuits about that right now. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a development of a tool. And I think generative AI is a tool, but it's kind of like the transition from uh, stone tools to hand tools and then in the later uh, to, you know, lithium battery powered power tools. You know, the tools develop, let you do things a lot quicker than you used to be able to with that, you know, stone axe. 
but now you have uh, you can do things a lot faster. You're creating the same things, but your tools are a lot better. And if you look at it at that, you know, you can accept it. I think um, I think there's certain things, certain areas that are going to disappear. You know, uh, art directors or production designers used to have style books, used to go into their offices and they'd have whole whole library of style books, which they would look through and look for a style of uh, architecture or a style of room or style of furniture that they want to look, that they want to feature in a film or a television show. And I think the creativity, that's the new thing. That's the thing about AI that didn't exist in the past. Uh, Cause the less information you give it, the more creative it gets. So things like writer's block may be a thing in the past with generative AI. You, if you get stuck on something, you just say, you know, where would you go from here? Let chat GPT come up with four, you know, give me four different uh, scenarios uh, for this storyline to continue. And it can do that. And the same thing with generative uh, uh, graphics AI. You know, if you're looking for a style or a look, uh, when I look at some of the mid-journey uh, photos that are in the community showcase, uh, you see a lot of them that say, you know, Pixar-style, Pixar cute uh, little girl, et cetera. You know, so that when they're when an animation company is Disney is trying to come up with a new character to feature, you know, their next mega uh, mega show on, uh, they can generate a whole lot of choices in the style that is theirs without any cost or in hiring any uh, any of their character designers to brainstorm on. They can choose one and then hand it over to the animators to go to town. And soon, I guess, the ability to actually animate it will be handled by AI, but that's still a step away. So we're moving in that direction. So it's going to displace a number of people, mostly the highly creative people first, and, and then the, uh, and, then the and, workers. And I want to, I, I just want to say that one of the reasons we see so much about it right now is because it's happening to white collar workers instead of blue collar workers. You know, when the factories replaced all the blue collar workers with machines, we were like, well, that's progress and they're just going to have to figure it out. And when it's, but now that it's like white collar workers, it was like, oh. <laughs> like, you know, now, 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 no, no one's safe, you know? So that's part of what we're seeing a little bit of. Let me show you a little bit before we go to the next comment. Um, so uh, here, so what I did is we, here's the image that we created there, but remember that we can keep on adding layers. So I can say, Hey, I want uh, a, you know, add, let's see here. Um, let's see, we want a boat, uh, two, let's see, two people in a rowboat. I haven't tried this, so we'll see how this goes. Um, generate. So now it's, now it's gonna take that little section. So it's not just that you can lay that out. You can do the basic layout of what you're doing um, and, uh, but then you can start adding, you know, other details, um, you know, to the, you know, to the process here. Add an oil rig. Okay. What if you do something stupid? So there's, there's people. I said, so now I said two and let's see if it, oh, there's three. Okay, there's two. So there's two there. And, you know, it doesn't, it, you know, kind of faded it in. Maybe it's, you know, maybe I might do a, need to do a little bit more work with that. But I could take, uh, let's see, Chris said. Um, uh, I was kidding, by the way. Well, what if you, you do something rig. stupid and you draw an area in the trees and say, add two people in a rowboat? What is it? Does it it'll just put two people in the rowboat. <laughs> in the trees? Yeah, 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 yeah okay. totally. Right. It'll, just, it'll, add, it'll add two people. But well, again, so when you watch this, you want to think about the idea that um, uh, that someone is, 
Um, that, I mean, if you're a, if there's your little oil rig <laughs> that's there now, and and um, and then you have uh, you could have you know um, you know uh, here man climbing cliff. And so the thing is, is that as you, and it's got little shadows and stuff like that. It, the thing you want to look at, by the way, the scale is important. Like if you, if I make that square bigger, it will make the guy bigger, you know, like, so it'll, you know, so it'll fill that, it'll try to fill that square. So there, there's also, a guy. Also point out that it gives climbing. you multiple versions of the oil right. rig that you can select between. Right. Yeah. So there's the guy climbing there. Uh, he might be a little big. I could have made it bigger there. Um, yeah. So the, let's see if I have... See, this was go. the oil rig. I could have had it like this. I could have had it like this. I could have had it like this. But if I was, um, this guy, this guy's huge, by the way. Um, anyway, so, um, but if I had, if I, if, if you start to work on it, you can imagine a art director again, or, or someone who's trying to come up with something, a, a pitch deck, uh, images or whatever. I don't know if I would use this in a, in a commercial project yet, but what I will say is that it's that it is something that oh I just want to show you what I'm trying to figure as a director, as a DP, as someone who can't draw or can't use Photoshop, the ability to kind of sketch something out, get the overall view, start adding bits and pieces into it, and then hand it to a concept artist and say it's so much easier than trying to describe it all. You know, like just and being able to do that, and that is going to keep getting better and better. Go ahead, Bill. So for me, it was interesting when Courtney was talking about that, it, it caused the words in the style of to come to me because in the first uh, times that I was exploring that and we were exploring this on the show, you know, it was in the style of Rembrandt or the size of style of Salvador Dali or something like that. You can understand how you're reducing the large language model to something that it can act on and give you something that's closer to what you're looking for. But I immediately went to the thought of, okay, let's imagine there's a new hot graphic designer or something like that, Jane Crazy, and Jane Crazy has a style. So she starts getting a little viral and then people start saying, I want this in the style of Jane Crazy. Well, how much does that affect Jane Crazy's ability to capitalize on that brain generative style decision that she made? Or will it diffuse out among the artistic community so rapidly that agencies start doing their own Jane Crazy stuff and Jane Crazy's original content gets diffused as fast as these models diffuse it. To me, that's that's the more important thing is to whether or not there's still robust reason to be a leading edge creative and do something that hasn't been done before, where you can focus these models on everybody suddenly being able to do what you've generated. That's know, interesting I, to me. As a person who worked in visual effects, though, I mean, what I will say is that we didn't have any copyrights. We don't have any residuals. We don't have it. We have what we did the last show, you know, and when we figured it out, usually everybody figured it out, you know, pretty quickly. Like as soon as you do a shot at ILM and those people go work at Digital Domain, all those ideas go to Digital Domain and Weta and all these other things and the techniques of how it was used. You know, and and the again the artists that are the I'll say in visual effects the artists that are the best. We were I was in a I was having uh, I was having uh, lunch with with someone over the over the weekend in L.A. that we were talking about that there was this moment in 1990 I think it was 1995 um, Mission Impossible was coming out. I don't even know if Mission Impossible had come out yet, and there was a shot with British Airways at the very end. And I told, I was watching Mission Impossible because I was watching, I wanted to see it before the movie, before I saw the movie. I watched all of them last week. And the very first one I said, I pointed at that shot to my wife and I said, that shot changed the visual effects forever. That one shot. 
And she was like, well, how did it do that? Well, because John Noel, they, they didn't like the shot that they had. They needed an establishing shot. And John said, I can do that. And he got a, he downloaded a cheap model of a 737 and then textured it really well. And then he rendered it in passes. Now, those of us who do computer graphics don't think about rendering passes, but none of us had ever heard of that before. Like we, this was 1995, 1994, 1995. No one had ever thought of rendering passes. It's because John came from a visual effects firm that, you know, ILM that did passes for miniatures. So he's like, oh, I'll just do passes like I would do miniatures, like we do with the, with the motion control arm. And so he showed us that you could have a specular pass and a diffuse pass and a reflective pass and the window pass and, the, and all these other things. And he walked us through it piece by piece by piece by piece by piece and showed us exactly how he did it at this infamous dinner with Electric Image. There's this, this get-together for Electric Image, the summit. And, uh, but all of us were all the people who do visual effects, you know, for a lot of TV stuff. And it literally changed the industry overnight. Like all of us suddenly just were obsessed with, you know, when I did the Queenship a couple of years later, it was 22 passes of, of different surfaces and everything else to make it work. And it allowed us to adjust all those things. Did, did that affect negatively affect John Knoll? Not really. <laughs> you know, and part of that is because John Knoll just keeps moving. Like, you know, like he just keeps, he just keeps rolling down the bath and absorbing more information. And that's what we have to think about as an artist. It's not going to be about the last thing we created. It's going to be about the next thing that we create. And it's going to have, you're just going to have to keep moving because even with artists, when someone did an impressionism, some, a bunch of people saw it and then they all started doing impressionism. And if you look at art, like, you know, a lot of art, whether the machine's replacing you or not, as soon as you put it out there, people are going to look at what you did. And if they like it, they're going to start reproducing it, you know? And so you're, it's very hard for you to, copyright an idea yeah go ahead alan yeah i'll be honest with you this stuff's been keeping me up at night for a while i've been a bit um say gobsmacked i think we're going to look back on this five or ten years from now and realize that this is one of the most explosive uh disruptive technologies that's existed and i'm looking at everything at face value right now, but not just what's happening right now, but where, where this is going. It has so many implications everywhere. My mind is just thinking this is, you know, pretty soon you're going to see generative prompts in 3D, generative prompts, basically everywhere you're going to see generative prompts. And what does that, ex what does that mean? Uh, yeah. what, am, what am I supposed to do with it? Uh, Alex touched to the point where, well, um, it still takes this eye, you know, the eye, you can't replace the eye. If you get new artists coming in and, and it takes a while to, to, to develop the eye to be able to look things deeper. But to be honest with you, I'm looking at what's coming out from mid journey and you can tell mid journey, your dog is ugly and it'll render a beautifully rendered image of an ugly dog. I mean, it's, it's insane how good of an eye it actually has. And I'm thinking, how does it do this? And what I'm realizing now is one of the main shortcomings is it's not micro directable. If you have a specific, if, you, if you're willing to take yeah. whatever it is at face value, it's pretty amazing. But right. if you have a specific vision of what you want to create, exactly. it's very hard to get it there. And it, it'll get, it'll get better. I mean, like for instance, this is something that I, that I, this is, I like to make, um, I make a lot of screens for my, for my thing, but I, I had, this was generated by mid journey. So I just said, I wanted a, 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 um, uh, I don't know, pipes for circuits and stuff like that. Um, steampunk iPhone steam, background. Yeah, yeah, steampunk iPhone. And so then, but I can select this and go, well, what I really want underneath something is, I'll grab that and say, I want a, um, a black LED 
screen there. Um, you typed MED. LED. Yeah, LED. Black screen. Let's see what it generates here. So this is where you take mid-journey and then you start, to, I don't know what it's going to do here, but um, I've done it in the past. It's different every time, so it's kind of like a box of chocolates. Um, anyway, so the, uh, but but I think that, uh, so here, here put you know, it kind of embedded a screen. I can put another screen in here. So it'll do different, you know, but that, there's one that, that kind of fits into that. So I can start taking my mid-journey stuff and start adding. And what's cool about it is, is that the Photoshop is going to take the surrounding areas and, you know, kind of blend it in. Um, is it perfect yet? No, but I, but if I do a bunch of them, you know, I can, I can keep on uh, making it better. And so the point is, is that you do have more explicit control. And as a concept or something that I'm playing with, the amount of time, how I can tell you, like, how long would it take to do this background? Like to, to do what I just did there, that took, you know, 20 seconds in mid journey, and then another, you know, 20 seconds in Photoshop for a concept. That's weeks, like to get that quality, it would be weeks of modeling and, and texturing and rendering to, to get that kind of quality. And again, I might not, I might hire someone now, hand this to Alan and go, now make this this i need this very specific and everything else but he's got a really good idea of the of the feel that i want and i might just use it you know it just depends on how alex on how is that adding ambient occlusion and shadows and oh, lighting yeah. effects yeah that's amazing yeah it's really cool yeah go ahead chris um yeah i want to echo what alan was saying the the micro adjustability is clearly an issue it it may get better uh but Back to the thing about the um, in the style of, I think that, and we've talked about this before, copying a style or being inspired by a style that already exists is one thing. And if that's all you can do, then that's all you can do. You know, uh, what's the line? If you copy an idea, it's plagiarism. If you copy two ideas, it's innovation. Uh, the, the real key is the person that, doesn't get hired because of their style. Who was that lady's name, Bill? So, Lisa Crazy? What were you calling her? Uh, Jane Crazy, I think. Yes, I her used. biggest issue. She's got to get a different name. Uh, but, um, <laughs> I but just made her up. Yeah, so Jane Crazy, besides having the name issue, she doesn't want to be hired for her style. What you want to be known for is, I'm the person that you call when you want a whole new idea. A whole new idea. Because anybody can go to Midjourney and say, in the style of Jane Crazy or in the style of Rembrandt. But who's the next Rembrandt? Who's the next Jane Crazy? And, and I think that that's what you want to do. Although I got to look. Well, I but that say, brings I up an interesting, a fascinating point, Chris. School stuff into the future. If it took Jane 10 years of study to get to the point where she could do that brilliant idea, can she do iterative brilliant ideas every week for her client? Or was there something special about the confluence of her training that made that moment of creativity spark in an unusual way? And is that reproducible every week for a client? I guess what I would say, though, is that this whole concept of that someone would protect that is is a very new concept, like the last hundred years, you know, like since Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so, so the, um, because before that, it, it only lasted for a little while. And before that, it just was, you were just an artist putting things together and selling them. And if someone else did something like it, it didn't, you know, didn't really have, you know, there was, you know, that's been happening for, 
you know, for, for a long time. And so, yeah, so but I, think I do that, think that Alex, the, the, the ability for uh, Hello Kitty lunchboxes to hit the entire world in a month yeah, is but, different so, than it was back in the early days. So if you look at, let's, let's go back to the middle ages, uh, the image obscura revolutionized how paintings were done. When you look at, you know, so everyone was camera doing obscura, it by, they, yes. camera obscura, I'm sorry, camera obscura, uh, uh, what they were doing is going through a pin light, a pinhole, and having it project of that person on a wall, on, a, on, their, on their canvas. And then they were, they were sketching it all out and getting all the things right and painting, painting against it. And that revolutionized. When you see that sudden realism, it's because they were doing that. <laughs> like, you know, and so it, it totally, it, you know, it totally changed the way we did paintings. It made people who, you know, it, it made it much more efficient. It made it much more real. It made it all those, there's a great, um, uh, oh, I can't think of that. There's a, there's a show about, there, um, uh, there's a great documentary about, um, the person who started New Tech, uh, I can't think Tim, of Tim's uh, Vermeil. Tim, Tim's Vermeil. And, and you should watch that because he, explores it as a person who's not an artist goes back and builds that from scratch and proves that that is you know i think proves that it was done that way and so this kind of technology happens all the time you know like it's been happening for a long time we oh we have a different way of of putting that together when photography came out portrait portrait painting went out the door you know like and, and suddenly everybody has to figure out something else to do because as photography, I mean, it didn't take very long for photography to take over from portrait painting because now everybody can just have a, take a picture, you know? And so this is, this is stuff that we have to, you know, and, and we can dance with it or resist it, but it's not going to, the resisting part is just going to hurt. Like it's not, you know, cause it's just going to keep going um, in that, that direction. Uh, let's jump into the questions. Here's one from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, generative USD, USDZ. Go ahead, John. So Adobe acquired Figma for $20 billion. They had their show in San Francisco um, last month called Config 2023, where they showed Gingerbread, which was generative 3D. And that's going to have USDZ output in it. And and expect to see that at max in October. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, models are coming quickly. <laughs> um, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Static shots with Post uh, Photoshop backplates on numerous cameras, possible for multiple angles on a live stream? Uh, probably not yet, but it's coming. I mean, video, you're, you know, so if you look at runway.ai, you're looking at video being generated from uh, AI prompts. And so, you know, the, the video part is coming. Now, you can now in mid-journey render something out and then say, I want to pan this way. You can have an arrow and you can pan over and render the next section over and the next section over. And then you can bring it into photo, bring it into your video package and kind of pan across it as well. Um, you can also back up and do the same thing. So there's a couple different ways of, of managing that, um, but it's going to, that'll keep on progressing as well. Next question. Next question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What is the best free AI art generator and how does it compare to Photoshop? Go ahead, John. Midjourney used to be free, but not anymore. Midjourney is still outputting the best models because of their models is is built from all the all of the stuff that's on the internet. Unlike Adobe, Adobe's using all the stuff from Adobe stock, so they're using all licensed content. That's the reason why Midjourney's content's better. But having the tools in Photoshop facilitate the process of of creating imagery as you've seen here. But 
doing exactly what Alex just showed. I, I generate in mid-journey first, and I bring that stuff into Photoshop. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, which version of Photoshop are you using to access these generative AI tools? It's the Photoshop beta, which you can download. You got to just sign. You got to have a signed up account with with Photoshop or with with Adobe. I don't even think you have to have. I have a, a subscription to Photoshop, so that might be it. But you, um, I don't know if you need that or not. But it should be in the list of apps that are available as the Photoshop beta, and it's pretty slick. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, asks monthly costs. Monthly costs on Photoshop. Well, the beta is free right now, um, uh, as far as I know. And again, I don't know whether you need a Photoshop license or not. You can get a Photoshop license, I think, for $10 a month, I think, is the number um, that it, that is out there. And so um, it comes with Photoshop and Lightroom, I believe. And that's kind of the base um, version of that. And uh, But I don't know if you need that for the beta or not, because I already have it. Courtney? And what's the cost of MidJourney Pro? Is it 20 bucks a month now for the well, subscription? So... It depends on whether you buy it yearly or monthly, uh, and it depends on whether you how much rendering do you want to have available, and then it also depends on whether you want to be private or not. So you pay a little bit more for more rendering, you pay a little bit more. What I chose to do is go ahead and buy it for the year, probably last November or December. So I ended up paying about fifty bucks a month for the the top line. I just knew that I'm going to be using Midjourney all the time. I don't, you know, and so I could get a, a rung down for 45 bucks a month, or I could get for $3 more a month. If I, if I was willing to commit to a year, I would get, you know, three times or two times as much rendering. So for me, rendering fast privately is essentially, uh, I mean, unlimited. I don't ever run into the limit at the end of the month. And so I just sit there and just generate whatever I want, you know, at that level. But there's, I think there's a $15 version that has some limits to it. And what you can do in mid journey, for instance, is, is you can uh, you can go in what we call relaxed, which means that it'll render a lot slower. Um, it's putting you on back burner um, between people like me that just have it on fast all the time. Um, and so, if I'm trying to figure something out, I'm trying. I generally, oftentimes, will generate hundreds of images. So, are the caps uh, are the caps based on number of renders per time period, or just mm. number of ren renders total? Or it's processor time, and it's kind of hard to know exactly what it is. It just tells you where your processor time is. <laughs> I don't know if it's a certain number of images. You know, thirty five for every three hours or something. It's not per three hours; it's per month. And it's and and it, and you can and I did run into that cap the first time. That's why I increased it. Um, next question: Douglas Carmichael asks. Do you think we'll see generative imagery extend to 3D? Yeah, and we talked about that in the past, and we're absolutely going to see that. It's already happening. Uh, it's pretty simple right now, but it's going to be kind of amazing. Go ahead, Alan. Yeah, absolutely. It's all, it, Like Alex just said, it already is. Um, I'm seeing there's some plugins for Blender that are pretty amazing, and you got to think about what the implications of this. We were just talking about micro-directability. 3D actually does give you the ability to start micro-directing because you can just make basic primitive shapes, click on it, give it a generative prompt, and say, you know, this is a tree, this is a boat, this is this, and then you have the ability to navigate a 3D scene. So yeah. it, it's definitely going to be a thing, and it already is starting. I mean, it's going to be stunning. Because you're going to be able to say, I want a tree, I want a willow tree blowing in the wind. And it's going to create that, you know, it'd probably be Houdini or something like that. But it'll create that, it'll just create that tree 
and it'll have all the leaves and it'll be blowing and little things will be coming off of it. And all of that will be generated. You'll just have, all you'll be doing is moving that tree around. And if you want to take it over, you'll be able to grab onto it. And, you know, and, you know, there's this mix of, of explicit control and explicit control, implicit and explicit control that's going to happen as we get, as we keep on going forward, that is going to be truly amazing. And again, it's going to, it's going to explode what anybody who has an idea can create. So while it is impinging on people who can do this, who is, who are skilled, it's freeing up a lot of people with ideas. They have ideas of things in their mind and they want to project those things in their mind into the real world. And their ability to do that is going to be um, pretty amazing. So that creativity will be opened up because they don't have to know how to necessarily do the skill part. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado has a question. Is Stream Deck in your workflow? Stream Deck's in my workflow. It's not necessarily connected to what we're doing here, uh, but definitely I've got a bunch of Stream Decks floating around. Uh, next question. And it's from Paul Wallace asking, can anyone at any level use Photoshop now without any learning curve due to generative AI? I would say you can use, I mean, you can create generative AI without any, without a lot of skill. You're just doing those things, but... Uh, I mean, you need to have Photoshop skills to do anything with that generative AI past having it create something. Go down. I can't, can't hear you, Alan. Sorry, there we go. Yeah. Uh, more so now than at any time before. Uh, yes, most anybody can pick up. Anybody can be a great artist just through prompting, right? Uh, it... it you know, at the very least, you're going to be able to make some great memes in Photoshop. I don't know if you're going to be able to do anything really high end. but right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, the again, as a concept, and, and again, we're, we are at the beginning. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, <coughs> this is super early days. And I think that you're going to end up, again, seeing a whole new level of creativity that's coming out of this because pe people who have great ideas that don't know how to do it are going to be able to put their ideas out. Next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada. Can we call this Photoshop feature a reality paintbrush? I think that's up to Adobe <laughs> you know, <laughs> as to what we actually call it. Um, but I'm sure that, that I'm sure they're thinking about exactly what that's going to look like. Uh, next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin. Uh, what is the difference between AI art and generative art? I don't think that there is. I don't know. We can make up a difference. I'm not sure if there's really... Uh, any specific difference uh, between those two. So, um, yeah. So there you go. There's a, little in, there's a little introduction to uh, generative art on, in Photoshop. Uh, we're going to be talking about AI probably at least once a month, um, you know, because I think it's really important that we keep tracking it. This this industry is going to move very, very fast. And, and I think it's important for, for all of us as a group to be paying attention to it and, and really tracking what we can and can't do. Hopefully, we inspired some of you to to play with some of the new tools that have that Photoshop has. Uh, we're going to see it in other apps, but Photoshop is probably the furthest along as far as that little explicit, you know, there's uh, Project Firefly, there's Project Gingerbread, there's pro these are all things that you want to keep your eye on. And by the way, uh, I, I just saw there's a, there's a, a woman who um, has been just doing tons of, you know, showing all this generative art and gathering people together and talking about it on Twitter. And I just saw that she just got hired by Adobe. <laughs> and so uh, it shows you why like being, you know, posting, whether it's doing something as simple as being on a panel like this, uh, posting Photoshop, when you're learning things, what, what she figured out how to do was use this content and use knowledge as a currency to 
keep on building that up and building up, you know, people following her doing it. And so you want to think about not only how to do some of these things, but also think about how to teach other people how to do it because um, she was just sharing everything she was learning as fast as she was learning it. And now she's, um, now she's working at, at Adobe to do it, to do it in a, at a larger scale, I think. So it's just, just a good, good lesson for us um, to, to watch there. Um, thank you to the panel. Can't do this without you. So great to have a great conversation about first hour and second hour. Remember, this is the Tuesday is our graphics. So we'll be talking more and more about computer graphics, um, 2D, stills, video, 3D, um, you know, vision, stereo, AI. Those are the things that we're going to be covering here on Tuesdays. Um, so uh, so we really appreciate the, uh, the panel here that answered those questions. Um, thank you to the producers who, of course, asked all the great questions, kept us going uh, through the uh, first and second hour. And thank you to uh, the incredible team. There's this huge team of people who are producing the show, planning the show, um, uh, building out all the, the development of the show. Uh, all of those things are being done by, a, by an incredible crew, and we really appreciate your contribution. Uh, we traveled uh, the Tlaloc Traversal. We traveled um, 40,000 miles, 64,000 kilometers, and that's more than 317 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Now i got to make an ocean with a ship. See an illustration of the word gobsmacked. Gobsmacked. I'll put that into mid journey. What is a cob? And if you smack it, does it break? I'm just wondering. <laughs> Look like when it's smacked. Either mid journey will know, or it'll just make something up. It'll just go well. But we could do it in the, we have to do it Rembrandt lighting in the style of HR Geeker. There's that'll be dark. Very, very dark. All right. Pretty scary stuff, eh, kiddies? <laughs>